0: Morning, we're going to start studying through one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Acts. Uh, This is a book that has definitely impacted my life in very significant ways. Uh, It really helped me to have a a real passion for ministry, for missions, for church planning. Uh, It helped me to see that God can do amazing things through people who will submit their lives to him uh, and obey him. It really helped me to see that God can use anyone. Anyone who will trust him, anyone who will submit to him, no matter what their background is, no matter how messed up they've been, no matter how many times they've failed, it helped me to see the power of the Holy Spirit and how much we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. It helped me to see that God has a heart to reach people with the gospel, and he still has that. We see it in the book of Acts, and we see it today. And it revealed to me God's model for the church. I think it's fitting that we're starting the book of Acts right after I did uh, the teaching last week on the vision of the church because we see in the book of Acts our vision is there to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve the lost and the saved, and to send the equipped. All these things are found in the book of Acts. We see people getting saved, we see people getting equipped, we see people serving, and ultimately we see people sent out into the world to reach people with the gospel The book of Acts gives us a a biblical model for the church. You know, a lot of different denominations look to different models for what they base the church on. Here at our church, we look to Acts. Acts is the biblical model that we look to and follow for our church. Now, before we start studying through this amazing book, I want to give you a a little bit of background information to help you understand it uh, a little better. Uh, The first important bit of background information to note is that Acts is the sequel to Luke. Luke ends, we just finished that book, and and Jesus is risen from the dead, and and Acts really just picks up right where Luke left off, and the author of Luke is also the author of Acts. Luke wrote both the books uh, to the same individual, a man by the name of Theophilus, and so this is a sequel, it just continues the work of Jesus Christ. Christ, and I want to note a few things about our author Luke because uh, it is uh, he is significant in Scripture, and there's some interesting things to note about him. The first thing to note is that he was a Greek. Now you might be thinking, well, what's so significant about that? Well, the reason it's significant is because Luke is the only non-Jewish writer in all of the Scriptures. He's the only author in all of the Bible that wasn't Jewish. So God gave Luke an amazing privilege. This Gentile, one Gentile, got to write two books of the Bible. And something else that's significant to think about is when you look at the book of Acts and the book of Luke, and you count up all the words that Luke put into both those books, what you find is that Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a second, Paul wrote 13 books of the Bible. Luke only wrote two. That's true, but most of Paul's letters are small. And both Acts and Luke are quite large. And so when you just count up all the words that Paul wrote versus all the words that Luke wrote, actually Luke is the one that wrote the most of the New Testament, which is quite significant, especially since he was the only non-Jew. The second interesting thing I want you to note about Luke is something that we discover uh, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. We're told, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Luke was a physician. He was a medical doctor. He was someone who would have been highly educated. He was Greek, and in Greece, education was valued greatly. If he was a doctor uh, at that time, then he would have been uh, very well educated, had a lot of knowledge. Uh, Most scholars agree the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are the most scholarly writings in all of the Bible. Sir William Ramsay, a world-renowned archaeologist, did not believe in the Bible. So he went to Asia Minor, the area where the book of Acts and all its events take place. And he wanted to disprove Luke, and he wanted to disprove Acts, and he wanted to show this stuff didn't happen. And as he goes to all these places, he declares that he, that Luke, did not make one historical inaccuracy. And then went on to say that Luke is the greatest historian, past or present As a result, Sir William Ramsay became a believer in Christ. The book of Acts gives great attention to historic detail. It's very scientific in its approach. It's very logical in its approach. And Luke's writing to a Greek, uh, someone who kind of uh, pursued things with that logical, educated mind. And so we follow this logical process through this book. So the first interesting thing about Luke is he's the only non-Jewish writer in the New Testament, wrote more of it than anyone else. The second thing is he is a doctor. The third interesting thing I want you to note about Luke, especially as we study through the book of Acts, is that he was a very faithful friend to the Apostle Paul. He often took care of Paul's medical needs because he was a doctor and so he was uh, Paul's basically personal physician. As we start going through the book of Acts, we're going to see Luke come on the scene during Paul's second missionary journey. And Luke basically stays with Paul till the end of Paul's life. He goes on all these different journeys. He goes back to Paul, with Paul, to Rome. And something interesting, Paul's final letter that he wrote uh, is the book of 2 Timothy. And at the end of 2 Timothy, he says something that I think was quite significant. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, it says this. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. You know, I've been in Rome three different times. The first time I was there, uh, I went with friends. Two other times, I'd led students from Calvary Chapel's Bible College in Austria there, and I always made it a point to go to Paul's prison cell where he wrote 2 Timothy. And it's not a prison cell as we think today of a nice bed in a barred room. Uh, Actually, here's a picture of it. Uh, It's basically kind of a a dungeon. It was a cold, damp area. I can't even stand up all the way without ducking down. It's not even tall enough for me to get in there. Uh, But it's a great place. I would go in there and we'd go in there with students and you'd get all these tourists coming in and they know it was Paul's prison cell. And I would say, you know, you want to hear the letter that Paul wrote while he was here? And they say, oh, absolutely. So I would read Second Timothy aloud and all these tourists would come and listen to it. And if you read that book, it's a pretty powerful book. But something that always caught me at the end was this reality of all the people that Paul ministered to and with, they weren't with him. The only people that was with him at the end was Luke. And it shows that relationship that they had, that he went and was with Paul all the way to the end of Paul's life. So Luke's the author of Acts, and we're told that he writes to a man named Theophilus. This is also the same individual he wrote the Gospel of Luke to. If you remember back in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he writes this. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. At the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, we're told, "...the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach." The former account that Luke is referring to is the Gospel of Luke, and Theophilus is this man that he writes to. Now, we don't know that much about this individual Theophilus, but I will tell you uh, what we do know. Uh, Theophilus is a Greek name. Uh, it means lover of God. It was a common Greek name at that time. Uh, most excellent is a title. Uh, It was a customary title given really mainly to lawyers, not a title that we often give to lawyers today, but it was a title that they gave to lawyers back then. So he was most likely a lawyer. If not a lawyer, he was definitely someone who was in a prominent position uh, in the Roman Empire. And because this title was mostly given to lawyers, most commentators believe that actually Theophilus was Paul's defense attorney. Because you remember in Paul's going to Rome, he's on trial. Uh, And so, Uh, he would have had a a defense attorney uh, given to him. And so many people believe that Luke writes Luke and Acts for Theophilus so Theophilus can know how to build a defense for the Apostle Paul. And one of the things that make commentators believe that is because Acts ends quite abruptly with Paul going on the trial, we don't really know what happens. It's kind of left with that, uh, which would make sense because Luke wrote it before the, you know, verdict was given to us. And so um, we're not sure. We don't have enough details to be confident that Theophilus is this individual who, you know, was Luke's, uh, was Paul's lawyer. But uh, it definitely is an interesting thought. But, you know, what we do know, like with every book of the Bible, it's inspired by God and it's written for everyone's benefit, not just the initial uh, person that it was written to. The date that Acts was written was about uh, 63 A.D. during Paul's trial in Rome. And and the main purpose of this book is to give an accurate count of the birth and growth of the early church uh, and to give us a model of how the church should operate. The main theme of Acts is Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses reaching the world for Christ. It's a great theme. It's something that we're going to see over and over again. Holy Spirit empowered witnesses reaching the world for Jesus. Now, there are several places in the book of Acts that we're going to see. It begins and starts in Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, we're going to move out to Judea, which, as you can see, the tan area here is the region of Judea where Jerusalem is. And then it's going to go to Samaria, which is the region north of Judea. And then Luke's going to take us. To the ends of the earth. We're going to see Paul's three missionary journeys and also Paul's journey to Rome. Now, there's a key verse. Whenever you're studying through a book of the Bible, it's always good to try to find, is there a a verse that kind of summarizes the book and, and what it's all about? And Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is definitely that theme verse for this book. It says this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now it's interesting after Luke writes verse eight of chapter one, the rest of this letter follows this pattern. You're going to be witnesses of Jesus starting in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then the ends of the earth. In chapter one, Jesus first tells them, go to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. Once you receive it, then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In chapter 1, we see the disciples of Jesus waiting for the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. In chapters 2 through 7, we see these Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses in Jerusalem, starting at Pentecost, then we see Peter and John, then we see all of the apostles, and then we see Stephen. And then in verses 8 through 12, we have Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses in Judea and Samaria through Philip and through Paul and through Peter and then through the church. And then in chapters 13 through 28, we have Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses to the ends of the earth where we have Paul's first, second, and third missionary journey and then his journey to Rome where he's on trial. So the main emphasis of this book is Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses reaching the world for christ you know when i was growing up and and watching tv programs there were three words that i just hated to see on the screen and that was to be continued i'm a bit impatient i didn't want to wait another week and the worst thing was if it was to be continued at the end of a season and wait another year but you know i didn't like that i was like i want to know now what happens if you're like me in that regard, the end of uh, Acts is probably going to be a little bit of a letdown for you because it's kind of like to be continued. We're left with this question of, well, what happens? What happens next? What, what goes on with Paul? Now, we have the rest of Scripture to kind of fill in the blanks, but you know, Acts just kind of leaves us hanging in many respects. And I think, obviously, the Lord did that purposely. Because you know what? God is still empowering people with the Holy Spirit to reach the world for Christ. Acts isn't the end of the story. You know, we have you know, highlights of different individuals and what God has done, but for the last 2,000 years, God has continued to empower people like you and me to reach the world for him. And so we continue to see the book of Acts alive and well today. I believe that God wants to work in believers today like he worked in believers in the book of Acts And I'm excited to see how God's going to work in and through us as a church as we study through this book and as we put the lessons that we learn into practice. Well, now that we've looked at some important background information, let's start with the introduction that Luke gives us here to Acts in the first 11 verses of chapter 1. So Acts 1, starting in verse 1, it says this. So Luke starts off reminding Theophilus of the gospel of Luke that he wrote already to him. And he says, you know what, Theophilus, I want to remind you of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. Now, there's an important word here that I want you to note I want to draw out for you. Notice he says, began to do. You see, in the Gospel of Luke, we see the start of Jesus' ministry here on this earth as he's here physically with people on the earth, and that is the beginning of his ministry. And oftentimes we think, well, when he ascended to heaven, his ministry was done. No, that's not the truth. We look at the book of Acts and we think the Acts is the start of the end of Jesus' ministry. No, no, no. Acts is the continuation of Jesus' ministry. Luke is Jesus' ministry physically here on earth, doing it while he was here physically. Acts is the continuation of Jesus' ministry through his followers, empowered through his spirit. In John chapter 16, Jesus says something to his disciples that is very important to understand for us today as well. He says in verse 7, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, in John's gospel here, Jesus has said a lot of things that's kind of making the disciples sad. And then he says, I'm leaving you guys. And they're just disheartened. And then he has the audacity to turn around and say, it's to your advantage that I leave. Well, how in the world is it to our advantage that you go, Jesus? Well, he explains to them, the reason it's to your advantage that I go is because the Holy Spirit can't come until I leave. You see, Jesus is ultimately helping these guys see right now I'm with you. I'm physically present with you. But you know what? There's something even greater coming. I'm going to leave you and then I'm going to send the Spirit of God not just to be with you, but to dwell in you. In you, And so Jesus is saying, it's to your advantage I go. I'm going to go and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to come and he's going to dwell in you. And he's going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So the book of Acts is not the end of Jesus' ministry. It's the continuation of Jesus' ministry through his spirit-filled followers. And that ministry of Jesus continues today through us, his spirit-filled followers. Followers. And I think this is something so important to not miss that Acts is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ. A lot of your Bibles, you know, they put headings in there. They're not inspired headings, but, you know, people like to just put them in there. And I'm sure that many of your Bibles say the Acts of the Apostles. That's one of the most common ways in which Acts is described, and I don't like that heading because ultimately I think it takes the focus off of where it should be. Because when you read something that says the Acts of the Apostles, what usually comes to mind, and when you talk to a lot of people who think about the book of Acts, it's like, oh, those apostles and how wonderful they were, and look at all the things that they did and all the things that you know they accomplished and how great they were. If you read through the book of Acts and you conclude, oh, these guys were so great and they did all these great things, then let me tell you, you've completely missed the point. It's not about how great they are. It's about how great Jesus is. Jesus is the great one and Jesus is the one who's actually doing the work. He's just using these guys to accomplish it. And so if you conclude, look at how amazing they are and look at all that they accomplished and you just disregard Jesus, you've missed the point. Jesus is the focus of the book of Acts. It's continuing through the apostles. And so the title shouldn't be the Acts of the Apostles. It ultimately should be the Acts of Jesus, who ultimately works through his apostles and followers. You know, when we see God do great things in and through someone's life, like we do over and over in the book of Acts, we have a tendency to exalt the individual. We have a tendency to put people on a pedestal that they don't belong on and that God never intended them to be on. We often praise the person who is just the tool instead of the true source, which is Jesus. Several of you have had surgery recently, so maybe this will connect with you more. But imagine if you had a brain tumor. You go to the medical center, they get the best brain surgeon in all the world to come and they say, you know what, we're going to take care of you. And they, you know, you go to the hospital, they knock you out. This brain servant gets a scalpel, he carefully cuts out that brain tumor, removes everything. You now are in the recovery room. The doctor comes in there to see how you're doing. And imagine how silly it would be if you wake up, you see the doctor who performed this amazing surgery and you walk past him and you grab that scalpel. And you say, oh, scalpel, thank you so much for saving my life. I owe you my life. This is so amazing. Oh, you're so sharp, and you just did such a great job. You see, the reality was the scalpel is just the tool. It's only useful because the doctor has the skill to use it properly. But to actually look at the tool and think, oh, how wonderful you are, let's praise you, and not praise the doctor, and not say, Doctor, you're the one who did this for me. You know, that's ultimately what we're doing when we look at men or women that God uses and we say, Oh, look at you, let's praise you. You're so wonderful, let's lift you up on a pedestal. They're just the tool. God is the one who's done the work. He's just using them. And guess what? We're just tools. Without God working, we're useless. And I think oftentimes we think we're so great and we look at people and we think they're so great, but at the end of the day, we're sinful people and without God, we can't accomplish anything. But with him, we can accomplish all things, but understand this truth, don't miss, it's him, not us. And I want to emphasize that because as we go through the book of Acts, we see God do amazing things through people. And we look at guys like Peter, and we look at guys like Paul, and we have this tendency to think, wow, you're so amazing, I could never be like you, you're so spiritual, you're so awesome, when the reality is, no, actually, they were pretty big failures, and they had lots of sin, and God was still able to do amazing things through their life because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Everyone in the Bible that God uses are sinful failures. And I hope that encourages you. You know, when I looked at the book of Acts, I was actually encouraged, especially as we go through the book of Luke and we see what these guys were really like before God uses them in powerful ways. They're sinners. They're failures. But God was able to empower them and do great things through them. And I hope that encourages you. I know it encourages me because I realize I'm a sinner and I'm a failure, and yet God can still do great things through me like he did through those in the book of Acts. So don't exalt and praise the person that Jesus uses. Exalt and praise Jesus himself. You know, my summer before my senior year of high school is when I started getting connected with Calvary Chapel. Uh, and I went to uh, Mike McIntosh, some of you know that pastor. He had a church in San Diego, California. And, you know, most people on the back of their wall, like, we do have a logo, a cross, a dove, or whatever. Uh, and I found interesting, and even today, this is the stage that they have now. It's changed a little bit, but the same background is there. The words Jesus, uh, in big, bold letters. Before it was, when I was there, it was wooden, and someone made this huge thing. And at first I thought that was kind of odd. But you know what? something I found that was quite significant is... That's what the church was all about. You know, they didn't elevate the man. They didn't elevate the teaching. They didn't elevate the worship. It was all about Jesus. It was for him. It was because of him. It was to him. And that was something that I was so blessed by because in my church experience growing up, it was all about the people. Oh, look at them and look at the giftings they have. And it was always elevating the man and neglecting Jesus. And I think ultimately that is completely the wrong way that churches should do it. We should always have Jesus as the focus. The main focus of Acts is definitely Jesus, and so don't miss that as we study through this book. Don't get caught up in looking at the people that you miss, the one who's empowering them, the one who's working through them. Now, before Jesus was taken up to heaven, Luke tells us something that he did. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So before Jesus ascends back into heaven, he's risen from the dead, he has this span of time of 40 days. Before he goes back into heaven, Luke tells us three things that Jesus does with his disciples, and they're important three things uh, that prepare the disciples for what's coming. One of the things that Jesus does that Luke tells us is he presented himself alive after his suffering, after his death. But notice what Luke says, by many infallible proofs being seen by them for 40 days. And so after Jesus rose from the dead, he reveals himself to his disciples alive and well by many infallible proofs to help prove to them I truly did rise from the dead. Now, this is something that uh, we are going to look at in detail in a few weeks as we have Easter coming up. I'm going to focus on the proofs for the resurrection as we go through uh, the Easter story. And, you know, so we're going to get to look at that more in detail. But one of the most compelling proofs that there are is eyewitness testimony. And we're told here that for a 40-day span of time, there were plenty of people who were eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. Actually, Paul... In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is uh, the whole chapter is about the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection. In verse 6, he says, And after that, Jesus was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So Paul's saying, you know what? Actually, after Jesus rose from the dead in that 40-day span of time, he was seen by over 500 people at one time. That's just that one time. Obviously, he was seen by even more than that. And he says, you know what? A lot of these people are still alive today as I'm writing this letter. So if you don't believe me, you can go ask them, which is a huge proof. Hey, we have all these people still alive who are witnesses of the risen Jesus Christ. Now, if you took 500 people and put them in a courtroom and they were all eyewitnesses to the same thing, imagine, you know, the evidence that would stack up for the fact that Jesus truly was alive. Now it's important that Jesus did this for his followers because remember the message that they're going to proclaim as we start now in Acts and they're going out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth is Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. Now, everybody was convinced that Jesus died, but unless they were convinced that he also rose, then that message would have fallen apart pretty quickly. And so he wanted to make it clear with infallible proofs to his followers that truly I am risen. And now you can go boldly and proclaim that message to the world who needs to hear it. Another thing that Luke tells us Jesus did before ascending to heaven was he spoke of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We're not given details about that. Obviously, Jesus, throughout the gospel, had been sharing about the kingdom of God. He probably gives them some good reminders of things that they need to know. And then we're also told that he um, gave commandments to the apostles that he had chosen. Now, if you remember at the end of Luke's gospel, we have one of those commands that Jesus gave. In Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 46, it says... Then Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Notice here, one of the commands that Jesus gives to his followers, to the apostles, is ultimately, you guys, I'm commanding you to go out into this world and to proclaim the wonderful gospel news. Now, you know what? Have you ever stopped and considered the task that Jesus was giving to his disciples? And have you ever stopped to consider the timing of this task that he's giving to them? Guys, I want you to reach... The whole world with the good news of what I've done for it. You know, when I just think of Pasadena and trying to reach Pasadena with the good news of the gospel, that still seems to me like an overwhelming task. Of how do we accomplish that? How do we reach all of Pasadena with the gospel? Jesus' command was even bigger than that. See, Pasadena only has a little over 150,000 people. There are a billion people uh, in the world, and and Jesus says, "I want you guys to reach the world with the gospel." So the command that Jesus gives to these disciples seems like an impossible one. And the timing, I find, is very significant. Because just a few weeks earlier, I'm convinced if Jesus would have told these guys, Hey, guys... I want you to reach the world with the gospel. They would have said, no problem, Jesus. We got this under control. We can handle this. We'll do this for you because they thought they would. They thought they could. Remember when Jesus in the upper room says, you know, you guys are going to abandon me. Oh, no, we're not, Jesus. We would die for you. And then Peter says, even if all these guys abandon you, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. You see, they thought they were so strong. They thought they could accomplish so much. But now they've failed miserably. Every single one of Jesus' disciples abandoned him in his time of greatest need. And Peter, the most outspoken one, denied him three times. And so, you know, a few weeks ago when Jesus might have given this command, they probably would have thought, yeah, we could do this, Jesus. Yeah, we'll go for it. But now they recognize their weakness. They recognize that, no, we could not accomplish such a task. How are we going to do this? I think it's very interesting that Jesus waits until they're in this place where they see their own weakness before giving them such a command. You see, Jesus loves to use weak people, and he loves to use weak people who recognize that they're actually weak. A passage of scripture I love is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-29. through It says this, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, Not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. What I love about this passage of Scripture, it reveals God loves to choose weak people. Foolish people in the world's eyes. Messed up people. People who have a past that is sinful and with full of issues. And you know what? He likes to use people like that because ultimately he wants to get the glory. Because when he uses people like that, the world steps back and says, How in the world is that person being used in such an amazing, powerful way? You know, because when you have uh, the people in the world that they, oh, well, yes, of course, this person. And, you know, he's so educated and he's got this and that. And surely, you know, God could use him. But when, when Jesus chooses to use the, the weak, messed up folks, the, the world looks back and thinks, I got to give glory to God. I surely can't give glory to that person. But you know what? Jesus also wants to use people not who are just <laughs> messed up and weak. But he wants you to recognize it. You know, all of us ultimately are messed up and weak. All of us have sin. All of us have failures, The problem is that our pride oftentimes keeps us from admitting that to ourselves and actually believing that. And so many times we think higher of ourselves than we ought to. And that is a huge thing that hinders us from being used by Jesus. Because ultimately, when we think high of ourselves and God uses us in a significant way, we have a tendency to try to take the glory. Well, the reason all this is happening is because of me. I mean, look at how great I am. And, you know, look at all the giftings I have. And only God could have used me to accomplish these things. And so we have a tendency to take the glory that belongs to God. And so God loves to use people not only who are weak, but recognize their weakness and will give him the glory. You know, each one of the disciples were witnesses. And because they're witnesses, they were going to be targets for the Pharisees. This is something that's interesting because there's a price to being an eyewitness. You know, today we have the witness protection program. It's put in place because, you know, you've seen movies and TV shows where you've got mobsters and they kill someone and someone sees it. And, you know, they go and they said, OK, we're going to have you testify and that's going to put this person away for life. And, you know, well, what do the mobsters want to do? They want to kill that person. Why? You kill the witness, you kill the message. They can't testify anymore. Well, the Pharisees, they don't want anyone testifying that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the worst possible message for them at this point in time. And so you have these eyewitnesses who are now going to be huge targets for people who went out of their way to crucify Jesus. And so this is the situation that the disciples find themselves in. Now, when you look at how impossible the tax is that the disciples are given to reach the world for Christ, when you think of the lengths that the Pharisees would go to try to stop them from doing that, You have to conclude, man, how's this going to work? How is God going to be able to use these guys to reach the world for Christ? And maybe you even start to ask yourself a question, you know, Lord, did did you choose wisely? How, How could these men who are weak, who have failed, who have denied Jesus, who have all sorts of problems, reach the world with the gospel? That's a question I want all of us to ponder. Because the reality is, Jesus didn't call, just call them to reach the world with the gospel. He's called every one of his followers all the way to us. That's a command he wants us to seek to fulfill as well. How can you and I, who are weak, who have failed, who have all sorts of problems, reach the world with the gospel or even just reach Pasadena with the gospel? Now I want you to note that right after Jesus commands the disciples to take the gospel to the entire world, he gives them another command, a very important command. Don't miss this one in Luke 24:49. He says, "Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high." So after Jesus commands the disciples to reach the world with the gospel, he says, "But first, go to Jerusalem and wait." Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is something that Luke reiterates here in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you not at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus tells his disciples, You know what? I have a command for you. I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel, but before you go, you need to wait. Go to Jerusalem and wait. And what is it you're waiting for? You're waiting for God to send The power of the Holy Spirit to indwell you and give you what you need to fulfill this great command. You know what the disciples asked? (laughs) Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, You know what? This is not for you to know the time that the Father has appointed for that. You guys, don't even get focused on that. Don't worry about that. You just get back to what I just said. Go wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit, and once that comes, go out and preach the gospel. Don't concern yourself so much with the timing of everything of when I return. Just be obedient to what I've told you to do. When you guys stay focused on the command I've told you to reach the world with the gospel, you'll be good. You should receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You should be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the answer to the question, how can these men who are weak, who have failed, who have denied Jesus, who have all sorts of problems, reach the world with the gospel? The answer is the only way they could fulfill such a command is because God was going to empower them through the Holy Spirit to accomplish it. That's the only way that they could do it. That's the only way that it was possible. This is why Jesus says, wait before you go. Before you try to reach people with the gospel, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit because you can't accomplish this task until you're empowered to do it so the thing that enabled these ordinary men men who failed men who were weak men who had problems men who had all these issues what enabled them to reach the world for christ was the power of the holy spirit by themselves they were ordinary but when empowered by the holy spirit they became extraordinary By themselves, they were weak, but when empowered by the Holy Spirit, they became strong. By themselves, they were fearful, but when empowered by the Holy Spirit, they became bold. In their own ability and strength, there was no way they were going to reach the world with the gospel. But when empowered by God and the strength of Jesus Christ, they could do all things. And the same is true for us. We are ordinary people who have failed, who are weak, who have problems And we have this command to go into the world and preach the gospel, to reach people with the gospel. And so often we have that same fear of how in the world are we ever going to be able to do that? Well, in and of ourselves, we can't. In our own strength, and our own ability, it'll never happen. The only way that we will fulfill that command, or really any command that God gives us in scripture, is a dependence on him, to be empowered by him. His spirit has to empower us to accomplish the things that he's called us to do. God will never command you to do something that he won't give you the power to accomplish. We need to recognize that. We need to understand that. Go. (laughs) This is pretty big, Lord. I don't know. Trust me. I will enable you. I will empower you. I will give you what you need. But you need to wait for it. You need to pray for it. You need to receive it. But I will empower you. (laughs) Now, I want you to notice the process in which Jesus commands us to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. Notice here. He tells them, first, Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. The first place the disciples were to be witnesses of Jesus was where they were at, which was Jerusalem. And they started where they were at, reaching people where they were at. And then he says, from there, I want you to move out to the next place, which is Judea, the region that Jerusalem's actually in, the natural place, just the people that are right near you. And then I want you to go to the next region, which is Jerusalem. Samaria, a little bit north of the region of Judea. And then finally, I want you to move out to the ends of the earth. And as we think about you know, the pattern, this is a pattern that God has for us. He says for them, start where you're at, Jerusalem. For us, Pasadena. Then I want you to move to the region around that. So Judea, for us, Houston. And then I want you to go beyond that. For them, it was Samaria. For us, Texas. And then ultimately, to the ends of of the earth, You see, this pattern is start where you're at and then move outward. I think so interesting to me, I talk with people in the church or even Bible college students and different things. And, you know, that they, they want to go and they want to do missions in all these different places. And I always ask the first question, how are you serving here right now where you're at? Oh, well, I'm not doing anything. But man, when I get out there to the other country, I'm really going to serve. I'm really going to do it. No, you're not. If you can't serve now, if you can't preach the gospel now, why is it going to be any different when you're in a different country and you can't even speak the language and there are all these other problems that come? If you can't do it here, you're not going to do it there. And I think the pattern that Jesus brings is start where you're at. Start reaching people where you're at, and then I'm going to start moving you out to start reaching more and more. And as a church, we need to start impacting Pasadena. And the Lord's going to open up more doors for Houston and then Texas. And then, you know, I would love to be reaching out and going into different countries. But the reality is we want to do what we're doing here first. You know, when I was in Scotland, we received a lot of mission teams, and I could tell the mission teams who actually served and evangelized where they were versus ones who were just kind of coming for a vacation Uh, because, you know, they didn't have a clue what they were doing. Well, how many times have you guys evangelized? We don't. (laughs) What are you doing here? Oh, we thought we'd do it here in Scotland. This would be so great. And it's like, man, you know, obviously you weren't doing it where you were at, and that's where we should be. Let's finish up here in this introduction, verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This is the same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, who will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so now Jesus, he ascends into heaven, And we have these two men, most likely angels. They come to them and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come so in like manner as you saw him go. They're saying basically, as Jesus left, he's going to come back in the same way physically. And he's going to come back to the same place, the Mount of Olives. Uh, So, you know, you're gazing up. He's going to come back in the same way. I believe that return is is soon. Uh, But, you know, The book of Acts is a book full of action. And as we study it, hopefully it moves us to action. Not just to say, oh, it's so great of what God did in the past. Well, what does God want to do now through us here with the world that is lost and needs him? That as we see God moving in the past, it would spur us on to see him move in the present in the same way. Starting here in Pasadena and going out to the ends of the earth. I think we do need to understand Jesus is coming back soon. So let's make the most of every day to reach him with the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for who you are, so grateful for the work that you can do in a life. Lord, I I love the fact that these guys who followed you had so many problems and yet you were able to use them in such significant ways. Gives me hope for what you can do in and through my life. I hope it gives you The rest of us hope for what you can do through us as a church. Lord, we want to see you move in power. We want to see lives transformed. We want to see this community come to know you. Lord, we pray that you would just empower us, strengthen us, help us, give us the boldness, give us what we need to communicate the one message that can take someone from darkness to light, that can transform someone's eternal destiny. Lord, we are grateful to study this wonderful book. And I pray that you would help us to not just learn intellectually, Lord, but to truly learn in such a way that we apply it to our lives and it changes us and that we would have a heart and love for people like you do, especially lost people, especially people who don't know you and are in desperately in need of you. And so, Father, we just pray that you would just be preparing us individually and as a church for what you want to do in and through us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we close in a song? And I want to remind you guys when we're done, Lee will be up here, I'll be up here. We have a room over here if you want to come and get prayer. Uh, We're available to pray for you. Uh, Next week, we're going to do something a little special. Uh, It will be our year anniversary from when we started the church. Uh, And so we're going to have lunch here. Uh, We're going to do like we've done at other times. And so uh, if you'd like to help with the food, bring in some food, uh, talk with Myrna that, but it will be a good time just to celebrate uh, what God has done in this last year, Uh, and so let's just take a moment to uh, remember it's all about Jesus, uh, and let's just worship him uh, for who he is. Why don't we stand together?